Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. My name is Joseph Lyons, and I'm the host of Bottlenecks, a podcast by the UBC Supply Chain and Operations Association at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, like we discussed in our first episode back in September with Professor Harish Krishnan, our world has seen significant disruptions to the global supply chain. But it seems like the terms supply chain, bottlenecks, and disruption have especially become prevalent in the news in the past month or two. In BC, part of the reason is the unprecedented recent flooding that has impacted the movement of commodities like milk and gas between Vancouver and the rest of the province. But the news outlets have also finally cast their reporting eye at the ports and at supply chains, which most people seem to only have a passive understanding of before. And now, supply chain has even become a political topic. Uh, In the US, President Joe Biden announced in November that the Port of Los Angeles would move to being open 24-7 to try to alleviate a key bottleneck in getting things into the hands of Americans. Today, we're taking a broad look at Canada's trade infrastructure, as well as the topics like global shipping, sustainability, and what governments can do in the world of supply chain. For anyone who came out to our Connect Trek event on November 18th, you would remember one of our presenters, Joshua Barlin, who's worked for almost eight months with the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority, and who's also one of our external directors. We're very fortunate to also have Josh on the podcast team, and given the topic of today's episode, I'm really happy to have him on as a guest co-host. How are you, Josh? Hey, Joseph, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing well, thanks. Uh, Things are picking up, but uh, I don't know. I think we're getting through it. That's great. (laughs) That's good to hear. Yeah. um, So you mentioned um, on the panel at ConnectTrek as well, but um, yeah, as someone working for a port that's one of the more upstream supply chain partners in the Pacific Northwest, um, how do you feel about kind of hearing and reading about all of the supply chain disruptions that we're seeing here in uh, in Vancouver. Yeah, um, it's definitely unfortunate to to just see all the disruptions occurring throughout the supply chain, as it's not only affecting one sector or one part of the the chain. Um, in fact, it's pretty widespread, affecting even the end con- uh, consumers, and so. Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely unfortunate, but I I also think as students, um, it's a great case study to just learn from you know the the, the disruptions that we are uh, facing and you know to be more proactive for the future. Yeah, so I guess as as students, are you saying we should uh, put a more positive spin to everything around us? Yeah, definitely. I I believe that everything that we're seeing is a good learning experience so that we can fix our previous mistakes and you know um, build in or build i guess more more capacity um, in the supply chain for 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 our future generations yeah i mean well said and i I think that ties in really well to uh the theme of today's episode and so josh do you think you could tell us a bit about uh the guests that we have today yeah for sure um so our guest today is sarah 
um, Barnes Humphrey. She is one of the most influential women leaders in supply chain today. She is the founder and CEO of Ships, a transportation booking company that enables mid-sized companies to easily trade goods between international borders. Sarah is also the founder and host of a podcast called Let's Talk Supply Chain, a highly successful podcast reaching millions worldwide across different social media platforms. On that note, let's jump right into our chat with Sarah Barnes-Humphrey. So uh, yeah, it's nice to have you, Sarah. It is so great to be here, guys, and congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So if we can start with the first question. Uh, Yeah, uh, Sarah, do you mind just telling us a bit about yourself and how you got started with the Let's Talk Supply Chain podcast? Sure. Yeah. So I've been in logistics and supply chain for over 20 years. I spent majority of my career with a freight forwarding company just outside of Toronto, and it was a family business. It was my dad's business. And so I spent eight years in operations. So air freight, ocean freight, customs, warehousing, you name it. And then I spent eight years in sales selling all of those services. And then I ended up as director of sales and marketing for that company. And it was you know, back in 2015, 2016, and marketing and supply chain was, eh, it wasn't the greatest. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time. And I thought, well, hey, if Lewis Howes can have his own podcast, why can't Sarah Barnes Humphrey? And so I asked a guy from my customs department to be my co-host. And tongue in cheek, we called the podcast Two Babes Talk Supply Chain. (laughs) Um, And unfortunately, in the fall of 2017, my dad closed his doors and I had already started. There was companies paying to come on the show. So I had to keep the podcast going, but I lost my whole team. I lost my co-host. So I had to learn social media. I had to learn graphic design, website design editing all sorts of different things and uh by and in january 2018 i started the woman in supply chain series but it was still called two babes talk supply chain so by april no women wanted to come on my show called that so i ended up rebranding to let's talk supply chain in april of 2018 and the rest is kind of history that's really great to hear and would you say that you working at your dad's company for eight years and doing marketing and sales did that kind of like inspire you to get into supply chain or did you have that kind of passion before, you know, working for your dad's company? I say that supply chain has always been in my blood. (laughs) The reason why I say that is because, you know, my parents talked about logistics and supply chain at the dinner table, you know, all throughout high school. And so I was kind of in it at a very young age and, you know, from the time that I was 16, I wanted to take over that company. So kind of had a fire in my belly right from the beginning. That's great. We kind of want to talk about just the uh, Canada's role in the global economy and its supply chain system. And so um, in, in your perspective, what do you think Canada's role is in global trade? And how does geography kind of play into Uh, their role? Is there any advantages that we have as a country? Any limitations? It could be in the marine side, you know, in the rail or road. 
So Canada plays a huge, huge role, especially in North America. Obviously, we've got ports in Halifax, we've got ports in uh, Montreal, and we've got a couple of ports in Vancouver. And so a lot of times when we see some congestion in the U.S., U.S. retailers will actually use our ports to bring some of the product into the country. Um, and it also depends on where their customers are as well. Yes, of course, the bulk of the customers would be in the US, but then they would also have Canadian customers as well. And so how do they service those Canadian customers? Sometimes they move all of the products into the US and then they will move some of that product into Canada. Sometimes they move that product directly into Canada through our ports. Um, and they carry the inventory here in Canada. So we, I mean, we, from a variety of different ways, we as Canada contribute to the North American supply chain in, in big ways. And obviously, you know, we've got the rail that moves product from Vancouver into Toronto. We've got rail that moves product from Montreal into Toronto, as well as Halifax into Toronto as well. And um, that rail system also moves product into and out of the U.S. And the, the trading between Canada and the U.S. is obviously very, very important to both economies. Um, but they're very different, right? So I don't know if you guys know what de minimis is, but it's really the minimum value of goods that you can move across the border into and out of the states without paying GST and duties. The de minimis into the US for us is great. It's like $750 or $800 uh, as a limit. The de minimis on the other side, however, is only $40. And so you're paying GST and duties on anything over and above that. And so there's a lot of different ways for us to do cross-border commerce, including cross-docking, um, which I don't know if that's a term that your audience has heard of, but what will happen is the US shipper will accumulate all of the e-commerce orders for Canada put them on a couple of pallets, however many they need, move it across the border, um, clear it as one, and then they'll distribute it out to the end consumer in Canada. And there's a lot of that going on um, for efficiency of shipping, um, for efficiencies of supply chain. And so, yeah, Canada plays a huge, huge role, especially where our ports are located and how retailers utilize different ports at different times of the year. Yeah, I kind of want to touch on just the kind of advantage that you said earlier with um, docking in a Canadian port versus a U.S. Is there really a big advantage where ocean carriers pick, let's say, a Vancouver port instead of a Seattle or L.A.? Is the time difference that large or is it just because the congestion and let's say port of L.A. or port of Seattle is just too great for, for a lot of ocean carriers? And so a lot um, of shipments are directed to Canadian ports. Yeah, I think it gives them options, mm -hmm. right? I really think that it gives the retailers options. Um, and so depending on what's happening, and right now there's port congestion in the Port of LA and Long Beach, you know, so retailers might be taking a look at Texas. They might be looking at Florida, potentially for different places for their containers to go but they also might be looking at the Canadian ports. Um, it does take, I think, maybe one or two days longer. I mean, I haven't done logistics. Like I haven't actually moved freight by ocean freight for a number of years. I know that the lead times are a lot longer regardless of where you're moving your containers through. Um, but I do know for Canada, it's like one or two days, I think more than, than LA and Long Beach. And speaking, you kind of mentioned how a lot of ships nowadays are redirecting their, their goods to, to 
port at Texas. So would, would the price of, I know, I know the price uh, container freights are like the talk of many, many news nowadays. Um, do you think uh, by a carrier docking at a port of, port of Texas, do you think that the price will still be lower compared to, um, let's say a ship docking in Port of LA? Is the extra cost and let's say gas or labor from just extra time to get from just the, the Pacific to the, the east side, do you think that 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 is still, I guess, cheaper than you know waiting for um, a couple more days or weeks even for containers to arrive? It depends on your perspective when it comes to cost. So is cost just a dollar value? or is a cost in time. So you've got to think about this, right? So you've bought product from overseas. It's being put into a container. It's being moved to North America. There's capital costs in there, right? You've paid for that product. The longer that product stays in that container and it stays on the water, the more money you're losing every single day because you can't actually sell that product until it gets here, right? So when you think about costs, there's capital costs, there's, um, obviously timing that it's on the water and how long that's going to cost you as well. So for example, you know, Port of LA, Port of Long Beach, there's, I mean, the last check, I think there were 70 or 80 vessels out there. So something like 200,000 containers, right? And the longer it sits there, and it also depends on what your product is too. I mean, think about it. If it's perishable, if it's in a reefer container, you know, you don't want those things sitting or they can't sit if they're perishable. And so timing actually, in some cases, will be mean more than actual money. And so, you know, if you're looking at potential alternatives, I mean, there's South Carolina, like I said, there's Vancouver, there's uh, Fritz Rupert, all sorts of different places that you can send, but you also have to figure out what that congestion looks like. And so, you know, how much time is it sitting at the shipper? How much time is it sitting at the dock in let's say China, right? Because a lot of them are sitting for three to four weeks because they're being rolled over and rolled over and rolled over for every single vessel, right? Then it's, it's how long is it going to take to get here? Whether it's LA Long Beach, whether it's Prince Rupert, whether it's Texas, whether it's Florida, what does that look like? There's even New York and New Jersey. You know, what does that look like? And what's the timing on? What's the congestion at each one of those ports? What is, are they able to discharge fast enough? Where's the trucker shortage? Because there's a huge trucker shortage right now. So it's not just about getting the vessels to dock. It's also about getting those containers off, getting them on a truck and getting them to your facility. The other thing that needs to be considered is warehouse space. Do you have the warehouse space to hold or does your 3PL have the warehouse space to hold? And where is that 3PL? Is it closer to LA and Long Beach? Is it closer to Texas? You know, and then on top of that, a lot of companies are looking at their sustainability strategies and their carbon footprint. And so, you know, there's a lot of different things, there's a lot of different layers that companies and organizations are considering um, that could contribute to what you're talking about as quote unquote cost. Um, yeah, you, you kind of mentioned, yeah, the trucker shortages that we yeah, wanted to ask you earlier as well. Um, what do you think contributes to the shortage? Is it just a lack of um, just a, the change in job preferences or 
was there did COVID have anything to do with it or is it some is it just a wages issue do you mind talking about just that shortages in general yeah I don't have all the information on that so I'll just preface it by saying that what I'm hearing in the market is a yes we do have a truck driver shortage we have more trucks than we do drivers and I think I did a video on it the other day about uh, the number of drivers I think we need we need something like 60,000 drivers by 2025. And I think part of that comes from the surge in demand and how many trucks that we do have on the roads, right? And obviously we're not there with autonomous vehicles yet, right? That don't need drivers, but even those vehicles are gonna need somebody in that seat just in case, right? You might not need the team drivers, but you will need one driver in there just in case so we will need drivers um there's also a warehouse shortage right uh people aren't individuals aren't coming back to warehousing jobs and so that's creating a lot of backlog as well and so i think there's a variety of different factors right demand goes up um i think that covid probably did play a role in that as well there are companies that are offering like huge salaries and huge bonuses for people to actually join their companies to be truck drivers and so there's a lot of value in it uh, there's a lot of incentives to be a truck driver i know the woman in trucking association they do a really good job about bringing women into that part of the industry as well and making um uh, the highway stops safe for them as well. So there's a lot of different factors to consider. I think we're also going to see a mass exodus because there's going to be a lot of retiring um, from a trucking perspective as well. In terms of uh, transportation in the context of the Canadian and global economy, uh, is there anything else that you think is worth mentioning or that you think our, our audience should know really because our audience is mainly university students who are learning about um, the field of operations and logistics. Um, I think the one thing to keep in mind is there's a ton of opportunity. This is a great industry to be involved in as of right now. <laughs> Everybody's talking about supply chain. Everybody's looking at supply chain. But I also feel like you also have to get an idea of what's out there and what that career could look like for you, because there's many different directions. I mean, when we talk about supply chain, you've got everything from sourcing to buying to manufacturing to moving products to distributing products and then delivering products. So there's a wide variety of different opportunities that kind of awaits those students um, and a variety of roles as well. I think it's also one of the most traveled industries, right? There's a lot of opportunity to travel or to uh, live in other countries and be a part of a company for supply chain. I'm on the board for the Forum for International Trade Training, and that is really focused on exports. So I think Canada has a real opportunity as well for exports and to find new markets globally. And that can be a little bit of a challenge, obviously, with COVID and things kind of closing down a little bit. But as we open back up, really taking a look at different markets and if you have product or if you're working for a company that has products, really looking at 
exporting as an opportunity. And so if you want to, they've got a lot of really great resources, a lot of um, different workshops and things like that to learn more about, you know, international law and international marketing, because there's a lot of things that you need to know to be able to export to different countries, but it really creates a lot of opportunities for us in Canada within the global economy. So that was FIT, Forum for International Trade Training. Highly recommend you go and check them out as well. Speaking of uh, you being in the um, just, you know, in the export side as well, um, you know, considering the shortages that we have in the export container side, what are some, I guess, ways that Canada is doing to combat that and um, a lot of these shippers as well? Yeah, so that's that's a really tough question because it's not up to the government to supply empty containers, right? It's really up to the carriers and steamship lines. The trouble that we're seeing right now is obviously at the beginning of COVID, everybody globally needed PPE. So containers were full of PPE and they were moved to the places that needed the PPE. And then the Trans-Pacific route went haywire and the steamship lines realized that that's where the money was being made. And so they left a whole bunch of empty containers around the world that still haven't been picked up. And so there really is a huge disimbalance between obviously importing and exporting. The other challenge, which is really weird, is that shippers are trying to return empty containers and carriers are actually refusing them because they don't have room. They don't have anywhere to put them. And that's creating an issue because the importers are being charged every day that they, they keep that container. And, but the carrier can't take it back. So there's so many different little things that are happening within the supply chain, but it's not up to the Canadian government. They won't be able to do anything about that. Exporters are gonna have to work with their carriers to be able to get those empties. I mean, that's, the carriers really hold the power right now. And do you see this phenomenon only happening in the container side, or do you also see this in like the bulk shipping? Because I know a lot of uh, uh, grain, at least, is kind of directed to containers in this past few months. And so I'm not too sure if that's just in, in specific to container side. I don't actually know too much about bulk shipping. <laughs> um, I, what I do know is that Coca-Cola, I, I was reading something the other day and I read that Coca-Cola had moved to bulk because of the challenges that they're having in container shipping. So I think what's really interesting is that you're finding that retailers are being very innovative around how they're moving their products. So Costco has rented a vessel um, that they're going to be using to move their products up until the end of 2022. So that gives you a really good indication of how long these disruptions or how long that particular retailer who has a lot of data <laughs> to back it up is thinking that these disruptions are going to go, right? You've got Home Depot that are moving things on their own vessel. You've got Coca-Cola going to bulk rather than in containers. So there's a lot of innovation that is happening amongst the retailers. But to be honest with you, I don't know anything about bulk and I don't know anything about grain. For this next part, Josh mentions lean philosophy. If you don't know, that's a philosophy all about trimming wasteful activities that a lot of companies operate on recently. In logistics, a big example of leanness is a move away from keeping large stocks of inventory, which works great if there aren't any bottlenecks like congested ports. 
Um, so Sarah, there's this one, <clears throat> yeah, kind of at least in, you know, just in in my work and in school, there's this talk about, you know, just the increasing trend before the pandemic of lean operations. A lot of companies kind of moving um, their manufacturing or their source out of out of their country, right? And so in 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 your opinion or from what you're seeing in the market, do you see you know, um, a lot of companies continuing to to have that lean philosophy, whereas um, you know they they kind of cut down on on inventory. And considering what had happened in just this past year and a half with just the shortages, do you see companies moving still moving all their goods back, or are you seeing them reshoring their operations back to their uh, respective countries? So that's a really great question. I actually just did a webinar this morning with E2 Open and they came out with a survey based around, like it's very fact-based. Um, so if you guys look it up, I think it's E2 Open Inventory uh, 2021 or something like that. Go and, go and download that. Um, there's a lot of really great information that shows where we were pre-pandemic from an inventory standpoint and where we are currently with our you know, forecasting levels and demand levels. Um, and so a lot of what happened when COVID hit is that we could not predict that demand, right? Pre-COVID, we could predict demand and we could go by historical data, but nobody had ever seen anything like COVID before. So <laughs> demand planning kind of went out the window because we didn't see everybody, you know, buying toilet paper and, you know, squirreling that in their homes. And so it really threw everything for a loop. Yes, you're right. People were doing lean manufacturing. They were doing just in time, right? Then we went into the conversation about just in case. And so companies were bringing in safety stock. And that's what has caused some of the backlog with ocean freight because e-commerce went up 300% in 2020, which nobody could have predicted. Right. And now I'm talking to some shippers that never held inventory on certain products. Now they're talking about moving, moving forward with holding some of that product in inventory. So the conversations are really changing. Um, I don't think you're going to see manufacturing coming back to North America anytime soon. That takes time, right? It's not something that's going to happen overnight. I think governments might dictate as to what products need to be manufactured um, from a protection standpoint, right? Maybe like PPE, maybe certain medicines, things like that. But then it really comes down to what risks the companies are willing to take in their supply chains and what risks they're not willing to take in their supply chains. Some of that will be that they don't mind going back to just-in-time inventory. Some of that will be, no, we need just-in-case inventory. Some of that will be, we will still manufacture some products in China, but we're going to move some of that manufacturing to Vietnam. Or some of that will be, I want to manufacture for the local market instead of the global market. So pre-pandemic, you're manufacturing in China and you're moving it all over the world. Maybe now they're looking at, well, this product is really popular in the US, so let's manufacture that product here, and then we can reduce our carbon footprint, we can reduce the time to end consumer, those kinds of things. I know that Apple, for example, they moved some of their manufacturing into India, and one of the reasons why they did that was because it opened up a new consumer market for them, and so it made sense for them. And so I think we're gonna see this, and I think it's gonna happen, but right now they're firefighting 
right? Right now, they're really just getting into what that strategy looks like, what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. And speaking about the, the demand that you said was really hard to forecast, do you think some of that demand was caused by just the CERB and the U.S. stimulus check? Or was it kind of like just pent up demand from just COVID in general that was concentrated into one period of time? I think maybe a little bit of both. I think people weren't spending money on events. They weren't spending money on travel. They were sitting at home and they were shopping online, you know, mm -hmm. and some, for some people that got them through the pandemic, right? Because shopping, you know, getting a package at your door is like Christmas every day. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think that had a lot to do, it, do with it. They had a lot of discretionary spending that they couldn't spend anywhere else. And they decided to spend it online. So I guess, uh, Sarah, we're seeing a lot of impact from this recent, like, I don't know, all of the global disruptions that we've had in the, in the global supply chain. This is maybe a broad question, but what do you think are the, uh, some of the reasons that all of these disruptions are happening? And, and we, we touched on COVID-19, but like overall, how much of an impact did COVID have on current uh, global supply chain uh, predicament? Huge. I mean, so we go back to what I was saying about the imbalance of empty containers. Well, that kind of, you know, starts the whole thing where you're delivering PPE, but then you're not picking up those empty containers. Then you've got factory shutdowns in the Far East, right? Because of COVID. Then you've got, uh, there was 1800 workers, I think last March at the port of LA and the port of Long Beach that all had something to do with COVID. Either they had it, they knew somebody that they that had it, they had to isolate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that had a major impact to the port that we're even st seeing still to this day. Also, last, um, you know, February, I think it was, Texas had a major ice storm and that shut down a resin factory. And that resin factory um, actually produced resin to make car seats. And so not only do we have a ship chip shortage, we also have a resin shortage for these, for these car parts as well. And if you've driven by any car lot, like it's half empty, right? It's, it's crazy that it's half empty. And, and all of these things have something to do with it. Climate change has created more storms on the ocean. And so we saw a really high rate of containers going overboard. Um, I think we saw whole, more than a year's worth in like six months last year, the end of, la uh, the end of 2019 into 2020, I think, or no, sorry, into tw end of 2020 into 2021, you know, so there's, there's a bunch of things that has contributed to it, but definitely COVID has been one of the major causes. The other thing that I want to bring to light is seafarers. So on these vessels are a crew of people. And during COVID, some of these people have stayed on those vessels for 18 months. They haven't been able to get off at the port because of COVID. They haven't been able to go and see their families. And they're the ones that are responsible for 90% of trade. And they don't really get the recognition that they deserve. They don't get the support that they deserve. And so COVID from a mental health standpoint in this industry has really run amok as well. Next, we're gonna talk about freight rates. According to the Drury World Container Index, the global average price of a 40 foot container around this time two years ago in 2019 was around 1,500 US dollars. 
In comparison, the most recently assessed global average price in November 2021 is $900 short of 10,000 US dollars. Because I feel like this question is talked about or asked around, you know, almost every other day and they hear in the news. What are your, your thoughts on the rising freight rates and when do you see it cooling down? Just with like the shipping season seasonality coming up with like the, new, the Chinese New Year and Christmas season. How do you think, you know, that plays a role as well? Yeah, the prices are crazy. I mean, I've been in this industry for over 20 years. I've never seen anything like this before. But what it also gives an indication is that maybe we did need a rebalance, right? The carriers have talked about how they've lost money for years. And now, you know, now is their chance to maybe rebalance the market. And so I think that's what we're going to see. I don't think we're going to go back to pre-pandemic costs for ocean freight. I really don't. I think there's going to be a rebalance. I think the prices will drop eventually. Um, but like you talk about seasonality, I mean, we haven't really had seasonality here in 2021. I mean, peak season is supposed to happen in July and the rates just kept going up and up and up and up. There was no peak sur- peak season surcharge. It was just the rates, you know, were exploding and going up. And we haven't really seen that stop right? It's, they've just continued to rise. Um, Chinese New Year will, it's, it's going to come and we're going to see. I mean, it, if the congestion isn't uh, fixed by then <laughs> and if the demand is still where it's at and you're going to lose two weeks because of Chinese New Year, I mean, nothing's really going to change. I guess with the just the rising high price, do you think Ocean Cares would if it continues to rise, do you think they'd set a cap? Like, is there no, is there, is, or does just a market, the market dictate the, the price nowadays? Yeah, you're exactly right. They're, they're not going to put a cap. Are you kidding? They are making billions of dollars right now. Um, and unless somebody comes to them and tells them that they have to, which I don't think there's anybody that's going that, that even has that type of authority. Um, You know, I just, I don't see it happening, but I think the market will dictate. I mean, like I was talking about before, Home Depot getting their own vessels, Costco getting their own vessels. If they get used to being able to plan their future by doing it this way, they might leave that market altogether and they might do it themselves. And so what is that going to do for demand? Mm. And then as they build new vessels, that, that can actually take way more containers um, than previously, like these mega vessels, you know, how many of them are, depending on demand, how many of them are going to be empty, partially empty, how many of them are going to be full, you know, if they lose Home Depot, which is their third largest importer into the US, what does that mean? What are the gaps? What does that mean to small to mid- medium-sized businesses? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, so just, I kind of want to move the conversation to just the sustainability moving forward, um, especially for ocean carriers and a lot of supply chain partners. Um, what do you see, like from looking at the market, what do you see these partners or players are doing right now to kind of combat like just the climate change? And is it like, is it, is it, is there incentive plans? Are there a change in the way we, we do certain things? Um, 
yeah, if you could just give a brief, you know, uh, overview of what's happening sustainability wise. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things that are coming down on the steamship lines. I mean, I think we saw in the Hague a few months ago, they came down on Shell. I know that's not a vessel or a steamship line, but that's a really large oil and gas company, you know, that has been held to the fire because of their sustainability practices. And I think, you know, more and more, we're going to see more and more of that. And the steamship lines are going to be held to that. We did have something just recently, I think in the last couple of years, I just can't remember what it was called. I don't know if it was the IMO. I don't know, IMO 2020 maybe, where they had to change their ballast, I think it is, on the vessels mm. so that it is more eco-friendly. I Forgive me, I can't remember what it was called, but they had to change certain things. And it they had to change, I think, the fuel that they were using on their vessels as well. So I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. If we're talking about individuals and if we're talking about organizations looking at their sustainability, my thought on that is keep it simple. Start where you can make the most impact with what you've got at the moment. It doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just start where you can. And everybody, because of social media, has a voice. So if you get an Amazon package and there's a battery in it, like that package is not okay. You know, voice your opinion on that. Take a picture of it. Put it on social media. Let everybody know that you got a huge box for a small product because packaging is a great place for organizations to start and really looking at sustainable packaging, the size of packaging, empowering their um, employees to choose the right packaging for that particular product or that particular order. Um, and then I also think procurement, um, they can really start their sustainability strategy with procurement. Those are really easy, small wins for organizations. The other thing is, is I have a LinkedIn learning course called the fundamentals of sustainable supply chains. And I would highly encourage everybody to go and listen to that because it's very high level. You know, it talks about mindset. It talks about champions and the importance of, of all of that, um, to getting started. Yeah, um, those are really great um, solutions and just some action action items as well. And yeah, so I think we're yeah wrapping up to oh, our. I, I have one last question, if that's okay, Josh. Yeah, thought of one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Sarah, I I I'm not too knowledgeable on this, so I'm wondering if you could touch on it. Um, I'm seeing in the news that uh, supply chains are becoming a pretty, I guess. Uh, hot topic and not just hot topic, but also kind of a politicized topic that um, people like President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau have talked about. And so I'm curious, um, what are the different, if you know, like what are the different initiatives that um, the Canadian and US governments are trying to take in regards to uh, any kind of supply chain initiatives? And in general, what do you think the, the government's role is in uh, supply chain industries? That's a great question. Um, I know a little bit about U.S., you know, President Biden and what he's doing. I know he rolled out a strategy, I think a supply chain strategy or a strategy that included supply chain a few months ago that I think you can go and look up um, online. He's also um, being very involved at the port of L.A. and Long Beach. And I believe they have asked the longshoremen to work 24 hours a day to clear up the congestion um, because 
you know, obviously it's not good for business. It's also not good for sustainability. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of different reasons why the government would get involved with that. Um, and then I think they also just put in an emergency fee. So if your container is sitting in the yard at LA and Long Beach for more than nine days, I think it's like $100 a day after that until it's picked up. So there's little things that they can do like that. Um, they can control what's happening on the trucking side and internally within their particular country. From uh, Trudeau's side, I haven't heard too, too much from him. Um, I know he was just at the sustainability summit. I know that we in Canada need better infrastructure, you know, to be able to move cargo a lot more efficiently. Um, and so, you know, that includes rail. I think we've had this infrastructure for a very long time and, and I think we need to put some money into it to be perfectly honest. I think what we might see in the future is they're talking about Hyperloop when it comes to trains, which will move cargo a lot more quicker, a lot more efficient and less carbon footprint as well. So I think there's a lot of innovation that is coming. So I think when it comes to the government, they are putting money and funding into innovation when it comes to you know, looking at transportation and supply chain. Um, and so that's always a good thing as well. But it's it's really interesting. You know, now <laughs> you're hearing the word supply chain across all news and like that's never happened before. Right. And I feel like, yeah, that's great for a lot of supply chain professionals like yourself. And because, you know, more and more people are tuning into your work and all these other professionals work. And so um, this, the, the issues is not great, but <laughs> it brings good business, I feel like. It, de it definitely does. It shines a light. I mean, supply chains can be a competitive advantage for an organization. And so now's the time to double down on what that looks like, especially with all the changes. Like you've got to get a hold of what that new normal looks like to be able to figure out what your strategy is moving forward. And that was the end of our chat with Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, host of the Let's Talk Supply Chain podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciated being on your podcast and um, reaching students. Students, I'm very passionate about reaching students, especially looking to get into supply chain and logistics and being part of the industry because that's going to be the next wave of innovation. And actually, I am part of a group of supply chain professionals that are getting together and offering our services for mentorship and things like that. So if anybody's interested, they can always look me up on LinkedIn, Sarah Barnes-Humphrey. Also on LinkedIn, you can find Sarah's Fundamentals of Sustainable Supply Chain course on LinkedIn Learning. Otherwise, you can check out Sarah's Let's Talk Supply Chain podcast, which we mentioned throughout this episode. But Sarah has another podcast called Blended, which focuses on diversity and inclusion. Okay, Josh, thanks for coming on to this episode of, uh, of Bottlenecks. Yeah, thanks uh, for uh, having me on as a guest host. I really enjoyed our I talk with Sarah and also to talk with uh, just ongoing supply chain disruptions. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you have the option wherever you're listening to our podcast, uh, please give it a rating and review. 
otherwise, uh, please shoot us a message at ubcscoa at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at ubc.scoa to give us feedback because we really appreciate it and it helps to make our podcast better each time. To stay up to date on all of our latest events, follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn at UBC Supply Chain and Operations Association and on Instagram, again, at ubc.scoa.